Hi everyone, Andrew here. Hope you're enjoying the podcast series so far. I have a great episode today talking about atrial fibrillation. Before we get started, I have just a few small requests that I might pose past you. If you are indeed enjoying the podcast and find it useful, I would hope that you would consider sharing the information or links with your friends and colleagues. Additionally, if it's not too much trouble, you could go over to iTunes and give me a review and a rating. Those do go a long way. Second, if there are some topics that you would like to hear or um, changes possibly you think need to be made, there was a survey that I posted a couple of months back um, where you can find a Google Forms to Uh, post information and some ideas about future episodes and information that you would like to learn more about. And then lastly, if you're on Twitter, you can interact with me there. My handle is at APCardio. I do try to share links to the episodes there and share some interesting content that I find related to the episodes that I discuss. So with that being said, we'll launch into today's episode. So back in 2002, the AFFIRM trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a randomized controlled trial comparing uh, rate control versus rhythm control in patients with atrial fibrillation. And from my perspective, it seemed that this trial, um, showing a no difference between those two strategies, swung a pendulum in favor of rate control for atrial fibrillation for many, many years. And as an internal medicine resident interacting with primarily internists and in internal medicine clinics, rate control tends to be the default method for treating atrial fibrillation. However, it's been about over the past year, as I have read more about this topic and talked with more uh, cardiologists about atrial fibrillation, I get the sense that the pendulum is swinging back towards a rhythm control strategy as being a preferred method for uh, some or many patients with atrial fibrillation. I have a lot of questions about this topic, and so I got two experts here at Washington University to discuss them with me. So I visited with Dr. Mitch Faddis and Dr. Phil Kukulich, and we all had a roundtable discussion where I presented a case and talked about the uh, points about the case and the management decisions and how many of these trials over the last 5-10 years have influenced their thinking in the management for atrial fibrillation. They make a pretty strong case for rhythm control. And when I'm talking about rhythm control, I'm talking about both antiarrhythmic drugs, but also more particularly in the last few years has been a stronger emphasis on the use of catheter ablation. So without further ado, we'll get started with today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. So thank you both for meeting with me today. We've got uh, Dr. Fattis and Dr. Kukulich. We'll be discussing about atrial fibrillation and some of the management decisions there. Uh, can I have you both say your name and your title? I'll start with you, Dr. Fattis. Hi, Mitch Fattis. I'm an electrophysiologist here 
um, been on staff since 1999. And I guess pertinent to this discussion, I, I did the first ablation for AF here in 2000. Um, and that woman did very well for many, many years. So I have some biases in our discussion today. Perfect. Good. And Andrew, thanks for the invitation. I'm Philip Kukulich. I'm an associate professor of medicine here at Washington University at Barnes Jewish Hospital. Also a cardiac electrophysiologist. All right. Perfect. Thank you both. With that uh, much of a preamble, let's just launch straight into our case that uh, I have for you. So I had a 63-year-old male come to see me in clinic. He has a history of obesity and diabetes. Um, if this was a curbsider episode, I might say that his name was Chad Vask or something like this. <laughs> But uh, so he comes in, he sees me, has a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. <clears throat> so he reports palpitations that occur a few times a month for the past year, and they last between five and 60 minutes. So recently they've been increasing in frequency, and so another physician put on an event monitor and captured this atrial fibrillation for him at home. So the first question for you seeing him is, do you pursue a rate or a rhythm control strategy for him? Well, I guess... Um and in my mind, um, the conversation that I have with patients um, always starts with the idea that you have atrial fibrillation because of some other disease process that's um, causing progressive fibrosis in your heart. That's my understanding of the literature um, that uh, behind AFib and its pathogenesis, and that unless we identify and arrest that process, that anything we do to treat atrial fibrillation is likely to fail ultimately. We may get uh, short-term um, success, but that long-term uh, you're destined to have a recurrence unless we can uh, identify the things that are driving this. And, and the big four uh, are probably present in this patient, although you mentioned just two, um, obesity, diabetes, um, and then the other two that are the common drivers are sleep apnea, which is present in a third to a half of all patients who present with AFib and hypertension. Um, so we go on an exhaustive look for sleep apnea, certainly because um, I know that uh, treatment of sleep apnea is critical to any long-term success down the rhythm control arm. Um, now, our, our bias in looking at this case is that this fellow is really uncomfortable with AF and um, is going to want something done specifically to prevent him from having episodes. So rhythm control seems to be um, where he's destined. So I think I'll let Phil go ahead and give his comments about early takes on this case. Sure. Mm -hmm. if, if I saw this guy in clinic, Andrew, and we had a conversation about this, we used to frame it around the three tenets of AFib management. That is stroke risk reduction, rate control when appropriate, rhythm control when appropriate. Now we add that fourth tenet, that fourth pillar, if you will of lifestyle modification that Mitch just went through very nicely. But that's mm -hmm. clearly an important part of what we do now. So in that conversation, I usually start with stroke risk reductions, where we do talk to patients about Chad's VASC scores and make sure that they understand what their yearly risk of stroke may be if we don't do something about it, and then what the chances of something bad happening with the medicines that we do use to try to prevent it, namely oral mm -hmm. anticoagulants. So we usually start with that stroke risk reduction because that's the one part that we know we've made the most progress with and have the most data to support. And then the decision for rate control and rhythm control um, is largely driven by symptoms, right? So if you are symptomatic with your atrial fibrillation, it is 
very much uh, appropriate to restore quality of life with efforts at rhythm control. And we'll go dig deeper into those efforts of rhythm control, but we have about six different medications, a catheter ablation procedure and a surgery that are at our disposal to try to keep somebody in regular rhythm and, and maintain most of their life in regular rhythm. So that's where I think this will ultimately go for this gentleman. If I saw him in clinic and he told me he felt his palpitations, they were bothering him, we would start to talk about the rhythm control strategies there. Okay. And I just want to highlight something that I heard from both of you is that you kind of emphasize more on a quality of life perspective for this gentleman in his symptomatics from atrial fibrillation. I do, based on that, I want to read one section here from the 2014 ACC and AHA guidelines on management for atrial fibrillation. It states that randomized controlled trials comparing outcomes of rhythm control strategy using antiarrhythmic drugs with a rate control strategy in, in patients with atrial fibrillation failed to show a superiority of rhythm control on mortality for either strategy. Furthermore, when applied in patients who are candidates for both treatment strategies, rhythm or rate control, a rhythm control strategy resulted in more hospitalizations. So while there may not be a difference in mortality versus rate versus rhythm, for this gentleman, maybe we're thinking more about his symptomatic burden, and he would probably be less symptomatic with a rhythm control strategy. Yeah, I, I want to address that because that was an that was largely driven by a very important randomized trial called AFFIRM. Mm -hmm. And in the AFFIRM trial, and really in all of the clinical trials, particularly with atrial fibrillation, you have to look at the population that was included, and you have to look at the outcomes that were measured. These are really mm -hmm. important, particularly as we start to quote other trials. Because we're not always, when we flash trials out there, we're not comparing apples to apples. So let's sure. talk about AFFIRM for one moment. 2,200 patients, very large study, well done study. But it was done in older patients who did not feel their AFib. This is important. These mm -hmm. were asymptomatic patients. Average age was about 75 years old. Okay. They were randomized into giving best efforts for rhythm control, and that was generally antiarrhythmic medicines and cardioversions mm -hmm. and efforts to stay in regular rhythm. Or they were given beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and just let be in atrial fibrillation, and we would just manage the rate. Okay. And indeed, we thought that we, we knew, in fact, we knew we had, we had the audacity to know that we were going to find a survival difference. And we were humbled when we didn't. Mm -hmm. And there was no difference in terms of survival between those two strategies. The thing that the upshot of that was positive and was negative in our fields. The, the positive part was that we felt reassured that it was okay, that we could keep people alive just as long if we left them in atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. That meant to me that we didn't have to push very hard on the patients who didn't feel their AFib. I was not going to make them live longer. But what has really been a bit of a blow to our field has been the extrapolation of that study to patients who have symptomatic AFib. Mm -hmm. On a weekly basis, I see patients who have been managed by their doctors in a rate control strategy who clearly feel their AFib. They've been suffering from symptoms of atrial fibrillation for months or years because they thought a firm applied to them. They thought that it doesn't matter if you do rate control or rhythm control, you're going to live the same. And that is probably true, but you're going to live with a poor quality of life. So that was the downside to this particular study. And I think, we, as you heard from Mitch and from me, symptoms really drive our decisions about trying to restore and maintain regular rhythm. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a, 
it's a fun study to talk about because I think it highlights um, audacity is a kind way to say it, but I, I would say the arrogance of electrophysiologists historically to know what's best for the patient, or at least they think they know what's best. So it was titled Affirm because the presumption was we're going to be, prevent strokes and people will live longer. It's clear that AF has got a pretty profound hemodynamic effect. Um, heart's a two-stage pump. When you lose that preload, um, there's a significant impact on your maximum cardiac output. Certainly if you're an active person, um, you're going to feel that with your exercise. Uh, not to mention that variations in the R interval, every beat has a different stroke volume. And that's, you know, unpleasant and maybe pathophysiology uh, have some impact long term. Certainly if you're tachycardic, you can develop the cardiomyopathy. Um, so the, uh, the idea was that that pathophysiology has to translate into, if we're aggressive with this thing, people are going to do a lot better. And it's a recapitulation of the same ideas with PVCs. Um, mm -hmm. We refuse to believe that getting rid of PVCs was a bad thing. It sort of cycled back around again because now we're getting rid of PVCs with catheter ablation, but that's another talk. Um, the other thing to remember from a firm, in my mind, is that the trend was towards a higher mortality in the rhythm control arm. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing to remember. Mm -hmm. uh, we certainly have the capacity to do harm. Uh, that trial has a lot of criticisms to, to be made. For example, um, in the uh, rate, the rhythm control strategy, if you felt that you had achieved rhythm control, and undoubtedly a lot had, even though we didn't have the same sort of sophisticated way to look for AFib that was silent, uh, you could be taken off of warfarin and put on just aspirin. 80% of the strokes happened in that group of people in that arm. Okay. Um, I think subsequent data suggests that um, the connection between AFib and the genesis of the thrombus is tenuous at best, and that a better pathophysiology to think of is a disease left atrium has AFib, and a disease left atrium is thrombogenic, and that those two things are independent events. They don't necessarily happen at the same time. And that might be, just to kind of expound upon that, this disease left atrium, that may indicate also why after cardioversion, you then promote, uh, or why we uh, why we prefer to put someone on anticoagulation because we haven't necessarily gotten rid of that underlying substrate that is thrombogenic within the left atrium. Very good point. Um, and you both raised up some very uh, good points that I appreciated because I think one thing that I notice as a resident spending most of my time in internal medicine clinics and with internists is that frequently, yes, the AFFIRM trial is used in this manner to say, oh, somebody here with atrial fibrillation, I can manage them with rate control and I don't need to send them to the electrophysiologist to you know, be put on ticosin or sotalol. And uh, or to get an ablation or whatnot, I can just manage them with my metoprolol or my deltaizem for longer periods of time. I do want to bring up one other portion from this uh, from those guidelines as well, because we mentioned about a, uh, a symptomatic difference. And so the guidelines mention this uh, mantra PAF style, the medical antiarrhythmic <clears throat> treatment or radiofrequency ablation in paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And what I note, and what they state in here, I'll just I'll just read from this. Uh, this trial compared AF catheter ablation with antiarrhythmic drug therapy as first-line therapy in 294 patients, so a smaller study. At the 24-month follow-up, more patients in the ablation, ablation group were free from any AF or symptomatic AF, and quality of life was significantly better. 
What I found interesting, though, is this following statement, where they state, however, total AF burden was not significantly different between the two groups, which seems as somewhat of a disconnect yeah, in yeah. my mind. What yeah. are your thoughts about that? No, let me that? help you with that. That was an important study. Uh, it was a Danish study, I believe, um, yeah. of nearly 300 patients. And, you know, I talk about um, you have to look very closely at the patients that are going into the trial, and you have to look very closely at the outcomes that you're measuring afterwards. In the exact opposite of a firm, which looked at 75-year-old asymptomatic patients, mm -hmm. Mantra AF looked at roughly, I think they were 52 years old was the average going into that. So they were Much young, younger. Okay. And they were essentially first episode of paroxysmal AFib. We're dealing with the early stages of AFib in the youngest patients. Mm. So it's a different patient population altogether. <clears throat> and if I asked, you know, if I did anything to this patient population, if I gave them flecainide or ticosin, or did a catheter ablation, or gave them gumdrops, chances are atrial fibrillation is not likely to be a big burden for them over the course of the next year. AFib doesn't progress that quickly. So I expect of a 52-year-old, 50, 55-year-old population, first presentation of AFib, they're likely to have a low burden. Okay, it's a, uh, Chances are it's going to be difficult, if that's the case, to demonstrate superiority of one technique over another if the chances of AFib coming back are only 10% in the next year. And maybe in the other arm, it's only 15%. Statistically, it'll be very difficult to determine a difference. Okay, so that's the population. And then we look at what did they study. And this is really important for any arrhythmia study. Mm -hmm. The thing that they used as their primary endpoint was burden. So the groups were then looked, and they looked at the average, the mean burden. When you look at a mean burden, it can be skewed dramatically by a few outliers. That is, if most of the patients have a burden mm -hmm. of 1% or 2%, but you have a handful of patients who are in the 80 or 90 or 100% burden, sure. it skews it dramatically, and it's not a very accurate representation of each patient's individual effect. So I think if you're going to use burden in any arrhythmia study, it really would be helpful to look at each individual patient. Did their specific patient or did their specific burden come down? That is, if I started with a 10% burden and then it became 2%, that was probably a, a win for me. Yeah. Um, if I started with 10% and I went to 9%, I don't know if that was much of a win for me. There's there's ways statistically to look at this. And, like and a waterfall plot or something like that. Very Yes, that's a good way to do it. So uh, they looked at other ways in this study, and they were secondary endpoints that they had pre-specified, and they reported. And when you looked at those, it was actually statistically important differences in terms of the number of patients who didn't have any AFib. So if you looked at that, the catheter ablation, I think it was a two-year endpoint, had an 85% chance of not having any more AFib. The mm. medicines had about a 70% chance. And that was a statistical difference. So you're looking at a 15% absolute improvement between 85 and 70. They also looked at symptomatic AFib, which was probably the thing that is most important for patients. And those numbers remain statistically important. I think it was like 92% to 83% or something like that. So there are other ways to look at it. I think as we continue to look, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about Cabana during this podcast, because you can't really talk about AFib in 2019 without yeah. talking about Cabana. Um, the, the preponderance of data now supports the idea that if you're trying to fix AFib, if you're trying to minimize AFib in your patients, catheter ablation is a better way to do it than a lifetime of medications. And now the question is, does that help everybody and does that help hard endpoints? 
that's up for some debate. Gotcha. There's another caveat to that trial. I like that it's sort of a worst case analysis of the failings of our uh, treatment, but technically it isn't what we do in 2019 and what a lot of people were doing at the mm. time of that study, which is to get um, pulmonary vein isolation, electrical isolation, which to me means uh, entrance and exit block out of the pulmonary vein antrum, which is the zone of the left atrium where the pulmonary veins um, insert. And I think that definition holds true for most people in the world that do this on a frequent basis. Um, what they did was essentially um, a technique um, which was the first pulmonary vein um, circumferential ablation technique um, proposed in the early 2000s, which is uh, a, an abatement of voltage um, guided by a circular mathing catheter. So they actually said, we're going to ablate in the antrum, try to avoid the veins, until all the signals we see are less than two-tenths of a millivolt. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, I think that would be pro-arrhythmic in some senses, uh, because it's really uh, whether or not the signals can exit that zone and enter into the rest of the left atrium. Uh, so I, I would say that they were doomed to failure because of the naivete of the technique they were using. They also were using, not uh, in a majority, but in some, they use this 8-millimeter tip catheter, which has a lot of problems with it. Um, so I don't think it represents um, the technology that was available in 2010 or the technique that was available in 2010. So I thought it was interesting that it was quoted in the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And this, sadly, is a, a, always going to be the case in a rapidly evolving field. The technology continues to change. Our mapping systems evolve. Our ablation systems evolve. Our knowledge of the disease evolves. And by the time we get our hands on some data of a well-run randomized clinical trial, the very first caveat that we throw at is, wow, that's not how we're doing it anymore. Yeah. So um, This technology is five, seven years old now at this point correct. by the time it's published. Yeah, correct. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Good caveats that you both bring up to there. Thank you. So let's, um, let's kind of come back to him. So you had back to our case, this 63 year old male. So Dr. Faddis had wanted to make sure that we didn't have, make sure we do our lifestyle modifications. So he's obese. Let's make sure we start counseling on some weight loss. He's diabetic. Let's make sure his diabetes is under control. You were also particularly concerned, I think about sleep apnea. So we sent him for a sleep study. I think everybody has a positive sleep study, whatever yes. sent. So he probably needs some CPAP, but you know, typical patient that I see is that he doesn't like his CPAP, can't find a mask that fits, so he persists in not using his CPAP and continues to have a uh, burden from his uh, atrial fibrillation. So you both mentioned rhythm control. What might be your initial strategy in pursuing rhythm control for him? Uh, medications versus catheter ablation. He's 63 years old. Sure. Um, I think Phil also started the case with an important uh, point, which is that medically, we're, the only thing we're obligated to do is protect him from stroke. And that mm -hmm. guideline has recently changed. The, uh, the novel oral anticoagulants have been elevated to the first-line treatment. Uh, they before had been um, an alternative to warfarin, but now the difference uh, in outcomes from all the large randomized cl clinical trials, you just can't ignore the fact that survival seems to be better with the novel oral anticoagulants, and the risk of um, intracerebral hemorrhage is dropped by 50%. Mm. Um, strangely, um, at least in, in thinking about it, uh, in people who take warfarin, 20% of the strokes that happen while you're on warfarin are because of intracranial hemorrhage. Um, 
you, we lose sight of that. That's an important that's a positive out, uh, uh, endpoint that's caused by a side effect of the drug. Okay, well, if he doesn't tolerate uh, CPAP, that's a huge problem. There are studies that suggest that ablation uh, is not effective, or at least compared to non-ablation, is not effective in people who aren't getting treatment. Now, that doesn't generally stop us from hoping uh, against hope that um, we'll still get ahead of things. So maybe with weight loss and uh, positional therapy for or maybe an oral appliance, maybe there's some workaround that we can kind of treat as CPAP, uh, even though we can't tolerate the CPAP, and that that's going to power uh, mm. some positive uh, results for um, the, um, the treatment, the rhythm control strategy. Well, let's maybe modify the case then with okay. that caveat in place. And let's say that he can tolerate a CPAP because it sounds like that would be a major distraction for you in possibly offering one of your therapies. So <laughs> if that's not an issue for you, what might be able to do to offer? Well, this is where um, a lot of factors come into play. Um, and I think one of those are um, tolerance of drugs, tolerance of side effects, um, perceptions about... Um, the AFib, an impact on quality of life, some of that's physical, some of that's mental. Some people are just so distraught about having AFib, they will not um, rest comfortably unless they know they've done everything they can to prevent it. So a lot of this is very personal and involves an uh, in-depth conversation of the therapies that are out there, sort of giving the, arming the patient with some conception of the spectrum of treatments. Uh, and it's fair to say that... Um, the treatment is more effective the higher the risk you take. Or I would say it another way, um, the most effective treatments have the highest risks of side effects. Sort of telling patients that and getting a sense of their risk tolerance and the impact on the AFib. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll listen to that conversation and say, uh, yeah, I don't want to take a lot of risk here. You know, I'm not that uncomfortable. And so that's probably a patient I'd try a drug, an arrhythmic drug that is. Uh, or another patient who's, say, a very fit person who is a marathoner and their resting heart rate is already bradycardic, so I know I can't use anything. Um, Tikasin was not labeled for paroxysmal AFib because it was so ineffective. Now, it's fair to say that paroxysmal AFib, paradoxically, are less sensitive to antiarrhythmic drugs, at least in my experience. Um, so we're already starting out at a disadvantage. So that patient might be... Um, uh, best uh, served by a catheter ablation. Probably would be best served for by catheter ablation, and I would sort of lobby for that based on those caveats. I like Phil take them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I'm seeing this guy in clinic, we have a, a pretty prescribed opportunity here for uh, for treatment. And the things that we talk about are we talk about medicines, catheter ablation, or surgery. And we talk about the risks and the benefits of each of those things. For this guy, if he has no other surgical needs, if his valves are working appropriately, mm -hmm. if he doesn't have surgical coronary disease, uh, the risks of a maze procedure and the invasiveness are too much compared to what we already have. So that usually falls off the table pretty quickly in a otherwise healthy paroxysmal AFib consultation. So now we're left between medicines and uh, catheter ablation. Medicines can be taken every day to prevent the AFib from happening. Alternatively, if your burden of AFib is low, if you only have it one every few months, you can take the pill-in-the-pocket approach. That is, you're not medicating yourself every day to prevent it, but you're keeping the pills in your pocket on the days that you have atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. You can take that medication 
studies have shown that that decreases the time that you remain in atrial fibrillation. So it's a, I like it because it's a way to empower certain patients uh, to be able to help manage their atrial fibrillation, but not have to deal with the longitudinal side effects of everyday medicines. Mm -hmm. right? So that works well if people's burden is low and if they can manage this. And in general, that's Usually once a month or less in my mind is where I make that cutoff. That kind of low. Okay. So if somebody's having, you know, once every two or three months, we might start with the pill-in-the-pocket approach, but have the conversations about the others. I agree with everything Mitch said about there's personal factors that go into this. When you get to the point of AFib happening more frequently and you have to decide between medications and catheter ablations, it's important to have the conversation that it is really a lifetime of medications that you're prescribing at that point, too. Um, if you had a toothache, you'd get a week of amoxicillin, and it would clear up the infection. If you have atrial fibrillation, you don't just get a week of sotalol to clear up the electrical abnormality, mm -hmm. right? You, you are suppressing that electrical abnormality from here to the finish line. It doesn't seem to remodel in positive ways most of the time. Now, we're learning more with um, lifestyle modification. In particular, I think weight loss. Of all of the lifestyle modifications, to me, weight loss is the most important. And I do set a very hard and fast goal of a 10% weight loss. So that obviously mm -hmm. means something to somebody. If you're 400 pounds, if you're 300 pounds, you can do that math. You can achieve that goal. That is, in the studies, the type of metabolism change that affects improvement in atrial fibrillation. And it turns out if you drop 10% of your body weight, you are likely to be on fewer diabetic medications. You're likely to be on fewer antihypertensive medicines. And you're, there's some electrophysiologic changes that, that adapt as well with that. So we talk about the 10% weight drop. We talk about the medicines. We talk about the catheter ablation. For this guy who's having symptoms, for the patient that you gave us, who's having symptoms many times a month, I would probably start with offering him either daily medication or an opportunity for a catheter ablation, depending on what his feelings were about procedures or about medicines. And you've seen it too, Andrew. I mean, you've seen people who don't want to take pills. They want to swear off pills. Mm -hmm. They would much rather have a fix now for something or a perceived fix now for something. And others who would never choose to have an elective cardiac ablation. They would rather cycle through medicines and keep the invasive nature of treatment away. So it's really a personal decision. You do have to get to know your patients and understand what, what makes them tick. Sure. Okay. And I appreciate both of those comments. The part of what kind of spurred my interest in this topic is that I feel like, as you mentioned earlier, this Affirm trial back in 2002 or around there, um, so similar between rate and rhythm control, but I feel like I've been hearing these murmurings of like a swaying of the pendulum back towards in favor of rhythm control. And one thing I wanted to highlight here that I thought was very interesting is this idea that rhythm control uh, can reduce the rates of dementia. And so there was one study I found of a, it's an intermountain group out in Utah where they followed longitudinal these patients who were treated for atrial fibrillation and appeared that a rhythm control strategy reduced the risks of dementia in there. Um, what are your thoughts about this point about rhythm control? I've got some strong feelings about this, um, and, I, and I would just caution you about the verbs that you use. Um, there hasn't really been shown uh, that rhythm control reduces that. That's a statement that you can make if you do a, pause, if you do a randomized trial and you uh, sure. are studying this closely. So let's, 
couch it with the, the fact that the Intermountain Group did a beautiful study, but it is a retrospective paired analysis study mm-hmm. where they took 4,000 plus patients who had atrial fibrillation who underwent catheter ablation. And they paired them in, a, I think it was a one to four trial, some, some other way to be able to retrospectively compare them to other patients that are age-matched, gender-matched, as matched as possible as you can in a retrospective study. Mm-hmm. And they showed an association with, so I can't really say cause. Sure, okay. An association with. So their, their risks of dementia appeared to be the same as somebody who had never had atrial fibrillation. So if you had a catheter ablation, your risks of dementia were the same as if you didn't have any AFib at all. And when you looked at patients who had AFib that didn't get catheter ablation, their risks of dementia were considerably higher. There is inherently a bias in this. We are inherently taking some of the healthiest patients for catheter ablation, and we are inherently not offering catheter ablation to the sickest patients. Mm -hmm. So retrospective studies can never overcome those biases. They tried as hard as they could, but you can never overcome those biases. I think it's thought-provoking. I think it's hypothesis-generating. I think it's it, it may be true, but the only way to really understand the cause and effect of it is to put it out on the line and do it in a prospective way. That is, follow dementia markers in a randomized trial of patients that you intervened on in some way and a control arm that you didn't. Mm-hmm. And then that, That's a much harder trial to execute, but that would really give you the definitive cause and effect. Sure. It's, a, it's an important um, observation uh, because it really is the elephant in the room. It's one of the elephants in the room. So the, the one thing that we haven't mentioned is the um, oft-repeated observation that if you have AFib, your mortality risk is higher. It's twice as high. Uh, the, probably the, the best um, study looking at that is from Framingham, the longitudinal study of a community of people looking at uh, mortality risk as a function of different disease markers and trying to capture the natural history of cardiovascular disease. And what they saw is a two-fold mortality increase, and that's been seen in other trials as well. Now, the question is, um, is there a cause and effect here? If we treat Mm -hmm. the AFib, can we make that mortality risk go away? Um, Well, most electrophysiologists feel there may be a cause and effect. I think it's, I'm sort of more skeptical. and think that it's likely that the sickest people have AFib and they're getting a higher mortality risk because of those other pathophysiology pieces. And mm-hmm. that AFib's a marker at that, but it's not really the cause and effect. So that's on the other side of the possibility. And the same thing is true with stroke. Is AFib the thing that we need to shoot at for stroke prevention? Well, a firm said no. Um, so uh, I'm skeptical. And that, that Intermountain Health um, Registry study, um, they didn't take a careful look at anticoagulation status. So that's the obvious thing. Uh, maybe this is a difference. Uh, Phil brings out the, the point about selection bias. There's no doubt that played a role as well. You wouldn't take a demented person to a catheter ablation. Sure. Um, so I think, you know, some maybe early in dementia, you, you would just sort of can tell from your interview that that would not be a great candidate and that would bias your outcome. Uh, but whether or not patients need to continue to be on anticoagulation after a successful ablation, uh, well, our party line and our understanding of the data is that, yes, we need to pay attention to CHAS2-VASC. You'll notice that CHAS2-VASC says nothing about paroxysmal or persistent or efficacy mm-hmm. of rhythm control. That's not in the risk. 
Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that it's the substrate. The substrate is thrombogenic, and, and that's the problem there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've often uh, I've wondered about that and when you're talking about the CHADS2 VAS score, in that there's nothing to input about the burden of atrial fibrillation that you're in. So is your risk different if you're always in atrial fibrillation versus if you're going in once a month per se, you just have AFib and then you get this score. So that's an interesting thought that you, uh, interesting point that you bring up from there. Um, circling back to our case. So certainly when he comes and sees you, you order an echocardiogram or he gets an echocardiogram at some point. And he has found to have a reduced uh, left ventricular ejection fraction, let's say less than 35%, right around 35%. There have been a couple of important trials that we've alluded to, to this point in the discussion, that I I want to bring up now in this case, in this setting for him. And we'll say that for our gentleman, he has a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So there were two studies, the Cabana trial, and then more recently, the Castle AF trial. Um, both having somewhat of different responses or maybe different answers into maybe what the better option is for or what the right, quote-unquote, management decision for him would be. What would be your thoughts about these two trials? Maybe first we should explain what these two trials are. Yeah, uh, and let's just take a a think about the patient first. So um, somebody shows up with new atrial fibrillation and they have a reduced ejection fraction for no other purposes. Um, You have to think that atrial fibrillation could be driving that cardiomyopathy. And that can happen through a number of mechanisms. It could just be a rate-related component. This could be a a tachycardia-mediated cardiomyopathy. And we've Mm -hmm. seen ejection fractions improve with just slowing down the heart rate, even in atrial fibrillation. Taking somebody from 140 to 90 as an average oftentimes improves the cardiomyopathy. But beyond that, there actually has been now a number of studies that have shown restoration of sinus rhythm seems to also improve the cardiomyopathy, improve the ejection fraction. Hmm. And interestingly, in some of the imaging studies, restoration of sinus rhythm also has an effect on fibrosis in the ventricle. Looking backwards at that, you might say, well, the more atrial fibrillation you have, the more likely you are to have fibrosis laid down in the ventricle, which is a, a bad thing. So there's this push of data now that say not only, you know, if we think about the mechanisms of this, it could be rate-related, but it could actually be rhythm-related as well. Mm. So if somebody, from a practical standpoint, you see somebody with new-onset atrial fibrillation and a reduced ejection fraction, that gives me even more um, power, more more, uh, enthusiasm to restore and maintain regular rhythm and see what the effect is on their cardiomyopathy we might fix a lot of problems with maintaining regular rhythm in this case. And in some ways, this is reminiscent of uh, the Castle AF study that you alluded to here. So this is a relatively new study published in New England Journal of Medicine. And it was a group of patients who had reduced ejection fractions, had defibrillators in, um, I think they were all for primary prevention, and they had, it was a mix, you're right, it was a mix of primary and, and secondary preventions. And uh, half of those patients were given a rate control strategy or a medication control strategy for their AFib. That was they could take antiarrhythmics or they could take beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, but it was called a medication control. And the other arm got catheter ablation. And catheter ablation oftentimes meant that you were also off your antiarrhythmics afterwards. 
So it's important to think that it's not just the intervention, it's the intervention plus the medical treatment that goes on over the course of time. And it looked at heart endpoints, which I think is nice. That's the question that we're asking now in, in our field is, do we see heart endpoint changes? Do we see hospitalizations or death or stroke change with restoration and maintenance of regular rhythm? And in this study, it was pretty profound that the combined endpoint of death and cardiovascular hospitalizations was indeed reduced if you underwent a catheter ablation and got off your antirhythmics versus staying on medical therapy over the course of those. And that, that became different over the course of about two to two and a half years. So it was a very profound effect. Um, it was uh, unlikely to be a statistical variant. It was you know, I'd like to think that if we saw a similar sort of effect with a heart failure medication, it would be a big deal in the heart failure world. Mm-hmm. That we're reducing cardiovascular hospitalizations. We're reducing death. This would be a prescribed medicine in anywhere else in cardiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet I think our, there's been some pushback in our field about how that trial was performed and how far we can extrapolate. And Similar to what I have always said, you have to look at the patients going in and the endpoints you're measuring on the out. So the patients going in in this situation were patients who had left atria that weren't too dilated. I think it was a six centimeter difference, I think is what they said. So anything under six centimeters. And it was a mix of paroxysmals and persistence. And it was heart failures that avoided the end stage class fours as well. So it's a fairly prescribed group of patients. But for those patients... It was an important endpoint to see a difference. So in my mind, this applies very much to where we would sit with this patient. He doesn't yet have a defibrillator. I would like to restore sinus rhythm to avoid the need to offer him one and maybe improve a lot of things, his risks of sudden cardiac arrest, his risk of cardiomyopathy, his risk of heart failure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's reasonable to extrapolate the Casaleaf study into where we are here. Mitch, your thoughts about Casaleaf? Yeah, it's an. I've always I've regarded it as a very strange trial since it was published, a dramatic outcome. Um, I think it it's telling that the um, committee that wrote the guidelines used that trial, considered a gold standard design, randomized controlled trial, not sham controlled, which would have been even better, um, but a randomized controlled trial nonetheless, and now include that as a 2B indication for ablation. So why did they do that? Um, Well, I think if you look carefully, they actually published the subgroup analysis. It's a tiny trial in comparison to other trials. Um, uh, The trial, to get into it, you had to either fail a drug, antiarrhythmic drug, Mm -hmm. or uh, you had to say, I don't want to take an antiarrhythmic drug. Uh, so I think a number got in. They didn't break that out in the original publication. So whether or not it's in the supplementary data, I don't know. Um, but in the subgroup analysis, if you'll look, um, you'll see that a third of the patients in both arms were on amiodarone at the end of the trial, and that in that group, there was no difference in outcome. Uh, mm. Primary outcome was um, mortality and heart failure hospitalization. So um, now you're cutting it pretty thin when you take a third of an already small group. Sure. Uh, The other thing is that all of the benefits seem to be focused in patients who uh, were younger than 65 and that had um, an EF that was over 25%. 
and that had class two, uh, New York Heart Association class heart failure. So the healthiest people are where the benefit is. Okay. And those are important caveats. Uh, then the other thing that sort of sticks in my mind is why is this trial so dramatically positive compared to, for example, AFCHF, a much bigger trial done with largely amiodarone in heart failure patients, um, not placebo control, but controlled against rhythm control. That trial did not show um, any sort of benefit in mortality or EF. Um, the other thing about that trial is that 70% um, uh, efficacy for amiodarone to maintain sinus rhythm. Now, they gauge that by uh, intermittent ECGs, so you could say, wow, they're missing all that silent AF. That's a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there were a lot of successes. Um, so is it that burning the atrium is giving you a mortality advantage? I can't buy that. Uh, I don't think that's it at all. I think there's something else here. Uh, one thing that occurred to me is that we know that shocks, all these people in Castle AF had ICDs. We know that shocks damage the heart and increase mortality. We have good data for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe it's that the people who didn't get catheter ablation had more ICD shocks, uh, and that led to the mortality signal that we're seeing here. We don't see anything about the veracity um, of their rhythm control strategy or rate control strategies. So I think there are a lot of questions. Uh, there are other uh, signals from other tiny trials that suggest that rhythm control does have a mortality advantage. Again, there's this question, is this selection bias? Are we really just looking at the healthiest people? Uh, and the similarly, as, as Phil pointed out, there's also a signal consistent in small trials um, that EF improves with rhythm control strategies. Um, so still questions out there? I don't know. I, I, I don't think um, that... Uh, Castle AF is the final say on this uh, trial. We didn't talk about Cabana. Um, we had hoped that Cabana would be a final say on this. Very large trial as opposed to Castle mm -hmm. AF. Uh, how many? 2,000? 2,200. 2,200 randomized. Um, a multinational study. And the combined endpoint is the trouble. Um, it included major bleeding events, uh, cardiac arrest, uh, stroke, um, and death. death. I think it was those four. The, mm -hmm. Those four. And uh, patients were randomized to catheter ablation uh, or medical therapy, not specified rhythm versus rate control. And it was not significantly different. Now, there was a huge crossover rate, I think something like 30% crossover from medical to ablation, which diminishes ability to see. Um, we really wanted to know whether or not mortality or stroke were affected by catheter ablation, at least from my perspective. Um, whether we're doing harm is a significant question here, uh, but it was so diluted. A uh, majority of the, uh, the, the major enrollers from the center were Russia. Well, that doesn't reflect my practice probably. I don't know that they have the same um, patient uh, patients or access to technology or strategies for following the patients. Um, so I'm disappointed that Cabana wasn't more definitive. Um, you can say, well, uh, the, the suggestion uh, that intention to treat it was positive. Um, yes, uh, it does look like intention to treat was positive in Cabana, but again, that's now hypothesis generating. It wasn't definitive because we're looking at subgroups here.
Mm-hmm. Fill your comments. Yeah, I want to. Um, I'll just do point counterpoint a little bit. Okay. I am higher on Castle AF, and I am lower on Cabana than I think the way that that you have t- uh, interpreted it. Um, from Castle AF, um, I was surprised that the guideline directors made it a two B indication because it is a randomized trial that was carefully done, and um, and it's it's also not just in isolation. There are other, as you mentioned, smaller trials. The Attack AF study that showed the, the exact same type of survival benefit and hospitalization benefit. So it's not entirely swimming uh, upstream. There's now three studies that have been two small randomized and one prospectively randomized larger, um, which is what uh, Castle AF is. So I, I give it a little bit more credit that it is a randomized trial. I think the hard part about it is that it does swim upstream from the way that we think about heart failure patients and goes back to what Mitch had said about is AFib causing the problems or is it a secondary bystander to an already sick heart? We've seen a lot of patients who have advanced heart failure, who advanced heart failure, Mm -hmm. who also have AFib. And whether we restore regular rhythm or not, it doesn't seem to do anything to their more advanced heart failure status. It doesn't seem to change their cardiomyopathy, the number of times they're frequently coming into the hospital. So I think our bias is that we're used to seeing, or the picture of a AF, HF patient in my mind is somebody who has really advanced heart failure. And I have a hard time thinking that we're going to fix that patient. There is a concern in our field that there's going to be an over-extrapolation of the data from Castle AF to every patient with heart failure in AF. And that would not be appropriate use of that data. It could be that these patients are too far end stage in their heart failure and their substrate is so far remodeled that there's... Correct. And I think that's, if you pooled a lot of cardiologists, a lot of electrophysiologists, I think that would be the the general take on on why Castle AF hasn't gained more traction. There's fear that this is going to extrapolate to every patient with heart failure. And uh, Mitch points out nicely, it is, they're in the subgroup. You can tell who those patients are. To it, and, and let's think about this. This is death and cardiovascular heart failure or cardiovascular admissions. This is a big deal. Those are really impactful endpoints. Mm-hmm. We owe it to our patients to know how we can prevent those things. In some ways, Castle AF and Cabana completely align on this. That is, when you look at the subgroup analysis of Cabana, the groups that do have the differences in that combined mortality of the death stroke. Uh, uh, cardiac arrest and severe bleeding. When you look at that, it indeed is the younger patients as well, and the youngest tertile in that group as well. So it's likely that you have to do something early enough in the AFib experience to alter the later effects of death and heart failure and hospitalization. It's likely that there's an impact that has to, you have to live long enough to achieve the benefit. Mm-hmm. And that if you had an 85-year-old person with advanced heart failure, it doesn't seem intuitive that if we did a catheter ablation on that person, we're going to make them live longer or stay out of the hospital. So I think, as I, as I mentioned before, I think the population that you're studying matters most. And I think what you're studying afterwards matters. So um, I think that's that's how I would put together those two. Great. Well, I think we've had a rich discussion about this case and a number of different trials that have influenced both of your thinking and the field's thinking in regards to rate, rhythm control, and then the use of catheter ablation. Um, maybe just a couple thoughts as like a summary for where you stand maybe on this topic. Let's start with Dr. Fattis. 
I might might have come off as being uh, uh, against catheter ablation, but that's <laughs> certainly the majority of my practice is catheter ablation of atrial fibrillation. So I think we're on uh, our firmest footing when we say that catheter ablation is um, the most definitive um, treatment for symptomatic AFib, um, short of May surgery, and um, that the patients who are um, suffering from very poor quality of life related to atrial fibrillation are best served by catheter ablation. So that's where we're on the firmest footing. Um, lots of uncertainty about whether or not rhythm control changes the natural history of cardiomyopathy and affects mortality. So I think we're still in the dark to some degree in that area. Okay. Yeah, and I, I would say, I would just sum it up by saying in, in in 2019, we have more treatment options now than we ever have had in the history of mankind to treat atrial fibrillation. We have more medicines, more catheter ablations, more different technologies to treat atrial fibrillation. And it turns out that they're getting more and more effective. So the catheter ablation in general is, is our, our sweet spot for risk and efficacy when we talk about trying to control atrial fibrillation. And that's largely driven by symptoms. So I would say here in 2019, you should not let an a symptomatic patient with atrial fibrillation suffer. We have opportunities to help expand and, exp and, and treat their quality of life. Um, there are many places that we've got to push further, though. We need to understand the mechanisms of atrial fibrillation in order to be able to tailor treatment to each patient. We need to understand the, the link between atrial fibrillation and stroke and I think Mitch has, has a very good way of thinking about that with the diseased left atrium. I think that we're going to be able to continue this, pushing this forward by understanding mechanisms, by better phenotyping our patients, realizing that one size does not fit all in atrial fibrillation. It really requires a tailored treatment program for each individual patient. Great. Well, those are great uh, summaries from both of you. I, lastly, uh, thank you again for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Nice. I'll now summarize a few of the main points from our discussion. First, one of your primary goals in treating a patient with atrial fibrillation should be stroke risk reduction, and that's using anticoagulation. One pearl that I learned from Dr. Faddis is about how the stroke risk appears to come from a diseased left atrium, and that is the thrombogenic portion and not so much of a contribution from the irregular rhythm. Next, when you're considering a patient when treating them for atrial fibrillation, probably more emphasis needs to be placed on managing their comorbidities. Particular emphasis was placed on obesity and obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. Kukulich advised that he, he strives for a 10% weight loss reduction in his patients, and they also focus on good control and good treatment of obstructive sleep apnea with CPAP. Now, when also considering treatments between rate and rhythm control, one point that often gets missed is that patients who were included in the infirm trial were asymptomatic. There may be patients in your clinic or in your practice who are not asymptomatic from their atrial fibrillation, yet are being treated with a rate control strategy. Next, both Dr. Kuklich and Dr. Faddis emphasized a shared uh, decision model with their patients. For example, when discussing rhythm control for their patients, there are options between antiarrhythmic medications and catheter ablation. 
And really, it comes down to a discussion between the patient's desires and preferences and their hopes and their fears uh, to help guide you in which would be the most appropriate management decision there. And then lastly, it appears that the most effective treatment for atrial fibrillation in restoring sinus rhythm is via catheter ablation. This is a rapidly evolving field with new technologies and and new techniques um, expanding every year. We're certainly only going to learn more about who the better candidates are, the underlying mechanisms, and the processes by which catheter ablation is most effective. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, who sang Night Owl on their album Directionless EP I have used for my theme music. It is used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution 3.0.